Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of February 21st, 2018. I'm Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host and I'm joined in studio by my fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle, how you doing? Hey, Neil. Uh, our other regular podcaster, Chris Herring, he'll be back next week. He's just finishing up his vacation. He's probably on a 16-hour flight as we speak, so it's just the two of us, but that doesn't diminish the content of the show today. We are definitely not on an all-star break. We're going to be joined by a special guest, ESPN's Brian Windhorst, to talk about the NBA's potential plan to change its playoff format, which Adam Silver mentioned uh, over All-Star Weekend. We'll also have a significant digit on the Toronto Raptors' ridiculously effective second unit. But first, since we asked for it, we're going to hear some of your suggestions for fixing the NBA All-Star Game. Last week, we talked about what we liked and disliked about the NBA All-Star Game and what the league might be able to do to improve it going forward. Maybe that doesn't need to be the case anymore because uh, uh, this game seemed a lot more competitive and a lot more fun. Certainly, the narrative about it seems to be just that instituting the playground-style draft may have fixed things. But still, we wanted to hear what you, our listeners, had to say. So we asked you to give us your best All-Star ideas. Here are a few of the best that we got. So first up, the O13 Lab, the Cefalo Lab, wrote in to suggest a more international format. He suggested letting EuroLeague players participate in the All-Star Weekend contest and having a separate All-Star game where the best non-NBA All-Stars play a team of EuroLeague All-Stars. Kyle, what do you think about that? That's something that, uh, first of all, they do in the Rising Stars game already, but other leagues have also made sort of a you know, U.S. first of the world type thing as their format. Well, he's he's asking something different here. He's asking for the EuroLeague specifically, so so non-NBA players to be in this. So there are a lot of leagues around the world with uh, NBA-level talent that, like, so the Chinese League comes to mind, like Steph spent years there playing on the Beijing Ducks. Steph being, Marbury. Steph Marbury yeah. over there, yeah, the, the one true the Steph. The first Steph. <laughs> um, and so, so that's number one. You would have to have some kind of way where, number one, you would be – uh, selecting who the best international players are, and number two, uh, getting buy-in from their clubs to to release them into like an injury risk of whatever an exhibition is, which uh, traditionally has been really really difficult uh, when international soccer has done it uh, for whatever um, you know that isn't already you know contractually obligated and whatnot, and so so teams tend to be uh, shying away from that more than they are. Uh, number two is man, like there are only but so many teams that you can put together like that. Like I. Um, like in, in hockey, it makes a little more sense, uh, than it does in basketball because I think however you break it down, like people are less interested in the, the Euro versus, uh, or whatever, the international versus the United States, uh, than they are, uh, in other sports. Okay, next up, uh, listener Brandon Hunt said, I want to build off your three-on-three eight-team idea, but also have this concept of winners out, so basically make it, take it, but taking it a step further uh, by having it basically be like a playground game where two teams are on the court, uh, whoever scores first stays on the court, uh, whoever gives up the bucket has to be replaced by another team uh, who then plays defense, and then they just basically cycle through that, uh, and then the first two teams to 20 points in that format end up playing each other in the finals. That seems kind of fun, right? I mean, my answer is what? <laughs> uh, uh, like too many rules, man. <laughs> like it's just. Um, I think for for this stuff, um, and we've seen it when they've changed the rules on the dunk contest, on the skills contest, uh, on whatever. Um, it needs to be a very simple form. So like, yeah, yeah, this um, is close, uh, but like, 
I don't know. I feel like if you need to, like, if you need more than like two short sentences for like how a your elevator operates, pitch, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that it might be have a few too many moving parts. Yeah, anytime you're getting into ideas of like aggregate scoring across multiple games and things, which I think our our next suggestion <laughs> also contains a lot of people. Uh, you know, this being five thirty eight uh, listenership, I think it makes sense that they would go this direction. John Marlin says the skills competition stinks but that the league should lock LeBron James and Draymond Green in a room for an hour and they'll emerge with something totally dope. I actually agree with that. Uh, I don't want to be in that room, though. Um, as for fixing the game, he liked the three-on-three idea, but worries the players might get tired and or play too many minutes overall um, and says a round-robin five-on-five tourney of four teams with seven players per squad, expanding the all-star numbers from 24 to 28, drafted as they are this year. The drafting order would have to be optimized for fairness. Six 10-minute games in the first round. The wrinkle would be that aggregate point differential would determine which teams advanced to the finals. I propose as a way to inject a semblance of defense into the games. Uh, yeah, so that's another case of sort of a complex system uh, that, again, we got a lot of those. Uh, I think in this one, the difference is that you have the seven-man teams instead of five, so you get subs in there, which sort of a lot of people identified uh, that in Nate's plan, these players would be logging a ton of minutes, uh, no matter how <laughs> short you basically make these games, unless you made them like five-minute uh, halves or something. Uh, and so you're asking, you know, as part of a tournament that's happening all at once on one afternoon, just a bunch of uh, minutes being played with no subs so in, in a lot of these people were saying man maybe allow subs uh, and I liked John's idea of basically the two teams that weren't active could sit because it would be in half court by mm-hmm. the way uh, would basically sit it at the half court line and they'd be, all be mic'd up and they'd be talking smack about the players in the game uh, and, and that could make for some compelling television compelling audio during the game right I, th- I think what we were trying to get at in all these um, or what the readers were getting at what we were trying to get at last week and what we ended up with in the game itself uh, which was entertaining and good and like still there was not much defense being played until you know the fourth quarter uh, but it wasn't Steph Curry except by Joel Embiid when trying to chase down bot guys and this that and the other <laughs> Well, Joel Embiid, uh, what was he? he hit a three pointer and he just like kind of moseyed back, unbelievable rainbow arcing three. It was amazing, and uh, on a back to back play sequence. I think just having Embiid in the All Star game was enough to infuse it with competitiveness and interest. He, he should just be a regular fixture, no matter what, whether his play warrants it or not. Right, but but yeah, yeah. I mean, but like that, that's exactly what like we're talking about, where. Yeah, like some kind of way to get guys like talking trash on each other, whatever else, in a way that there are some stakes. And the thing with the tournaments, uh, like that all these ideas seem to be, and that like ours was also, is that it gives you more of an opportunity to get uh, tap into a little bit of like what was going on in the fourth quarter of, no, 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 we're not just going to screw around for for three quarters and then like see where it is after uh, in the fourth. It's, oh, no, no, like we can we can screw around for a lot of it, but like there are going to be all these inflection points where like okay let's let's play some like three real plays um, yeah. and to close this thing out yeah a lot of moments of almost like mano a mano type of things which uh, as we talked about last week is really the core of what you want to get more of in an all-star game within reason you know you don't want guys going out there killing themselves and, and trying to get hurt or anything like that uh, final suggestion was made by Dave Peterson uh, he liked the idea of playing three on three games for charity uh, he suggested that the teams be broken down by division and that you basically use the All-Star Weekend events as a way to seed the three-on-three tournament uh, and then shorten the games. That's something that... Did they do that a few years ago? I remember there being sort of like a 
a freestyle festival themed dunk contest and and three point shootout where basically I think the conferences got separate points for uh, having players perform better in the skills challenge. Do you remember this? This uh, it, it didn't really. I mean, it was pointless. It was pointless at the time, but uh, it's something that it seems like they try occasionally. It, it's ringing a bell, but uh, but no, I it, I'm. I'm I don't know, I was probably drunk. <laughs> uh, uh, and then we did get one from Twitter in which uh, I think one of our Australian listeners, Clinton Smith, said that they should just play the game in Melbourne uh, and, and play for their favorite charity down there. He said asking them to play more defense, may- maybe playing in Australia would cause that. I- I'm not really sure. So uh, that, those were our suggestions. Thanks to all the readers that sent them in. Uh, and again, just to reiterate what we said at the top of the segment, it seemed like this year's changes with the draft structure went a long way toward making the all-star game better i don't know if that's just a condition of it being the first year and that there might be some fatigue to it down the line uh certainly there are ways that they could juice it up even more by oh i don't know televising the draft and and things like that have them draft right before the game and then just roll the ball out i think that would be the ultimate uh but it did seem like a better game with comparatively more defense being played not that that was a high bar to clear Right, and it's like it's also it's not that they got to stick with this forever. Um, like they have a they have a good like kind of gimmick right here. Um, it doesn't have to be LeBron and Steph every the year, and so like yeah, whenever this gets stale, they can you know figure something else out. But but yeah, it it did what it had to. <laughs> okay, so let's set aside the All Star talk for now and hear a message from our sponsor. The All-Star Game in L.A. was one tough ticket, but buying tickets to sports and concerts, even outside of All-Star Games, can be complicated and confusing. There is a better way to buy, though, with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or even need to find the perfect gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is specially designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites and lets you compare prices to find amazing deals. And to get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. So make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, listeners to The Lab can get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LAB, L-A-B, today. That's promo code LAB for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now back to the show. In his annual All-Star Weekend press conference, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver put forth a few interesting ideas that might change the playoffs as we know them. Here to talk about that, we are joined on the line by ESPN senior NBA writer Brian Windhorst. Thanks for being on the show, Brian. Hello there. Brian, you were at the uh, commissioner's presser when he said that. What were these big suggestions to shake up the playoff format? Well, first off, let me just say that some of his aides were not thrilled that he sort of threw this into an answer. He was not asked about this. He was asked about something else, and he sort of digressed midway through the answer. And, you know, you're sitting there, and generally Adam Silver's talking points are roughly the same. And, you know, he does a fair amount of interviews, and so I listen to them and read them. And so a lot of the things that he says I've heard before, and I and I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden you hear something different, and your ear sort of wiggles. 
And I was like, I thought I heard him say this. And so, but, but I wasn't sure that there was what he said. I, what I heard and what he said. So I actually had to spend some time following up. So there is some nuance here, which if you're a 538 reader, you're all about nuance. So hopefully this will appeal to you. So for the last couple of years, I know that there's been a call from the crowd that there really shouldn't be conferences in playoffs. There should be, um, the best 16 teams should make it, whether those 11 of those are in the West or what have you, that, that that's what we should go, why we should go by records. And there's two gigantic problems with that. The first problem is more structural, which is the fact that the teams in the West don't play the same schedule as the teams in the East. So if you were going to do that, you'd have to balance the schedule for everybody because it would be unfair that the teams in the West would have to play more West games. That would That's problematic on a number of reasons. But then you have more the practical issue of why it's not feasible, and that's that to get a change of this nature to happen in the NBA, you would have to get 20 of the 30 uh, NBA owners to vote for you. That's very difficult. Um, it took them several years to get lottery reform because it was such a fight to get 20 votes. And just very simply, if you were an Eastern uh, owner, why would you – vote for there to be an unbalanced way for the playoffs to be assembled? Why would even one Eastern owner, much less five, the five votes that you would need do that? Why would Philadelphia or New York or Toronto or Boston vote that we should be straight one through 16 seating? So, so you know, I've listened and read people, you know, put forth very um, intelligent and smart reasoning and even put forth theories. It's all beautiful, but it's all moot because you're never going to get the ownership vote. So that's just I, that's the world I live in. What Adam proposed, sort of, it felt like stream of consciousness, but actually was different, is something that actually has a theoretical chance, and that is you would still have eight teams in the East and eight teams from the West make it, but amongst those sixteen teams, you would then seed one through sixteen. So if we were to take today's standings, for example. You would have Golden State seated second and Houston seated one, or depending on when this podcast runs, whether that's flipped, they would be the top two seeds and at the opposite ends of the bracket. So you would have the chance for the teams with the two best records to meet in the finals as opposed to the conference finals. And that's what Adam floated. And that at least has a chance of getting 20 votes someday. So I, I know that's a long soliloquy, but I just had to make sure that we understood the nuanced difference. Uh, because even after I did the report, I wasn't seeing people responding correctly to, to what he actually said. So, Brian, in a lot of ways, uh, this seems strikes me as like it, it's definitely a concession to to those Eastern teams. But in some ways, it's also the worst of both, because those kind of also ran teams at the bottom of the Eastern Conference then are still locked into, you know, just getting their brains beat in by a slightly different opponent. Um, whereas under a true reseeding or a true 16 team playoff that, you know, took the, the best whatever with a balanced schedule, um, they would have a shot at, you know, a higher lottery pick or a lottery pick at all. And in an era where we are seeing lottery reform, where teams further down the lottery have um, are doubling and tripling the the odds that they get one of those really premium picks, um, has that uh, had any kind of traction with any of the executives you talk to? I think the I think it's very uh, much falls down party lines here. The teams in the West uh, favor better chance for them, and the teams in the East favor the system to stay at the status quo. Um, and the other thing is you have to realize that when you make a change like this, it's not for just a year or two. 
Um, in theory, it's someday the East could come back and be the more dominant conference. Now, <laughs> I have been covering the NBA for 15 years, and the West has generally been the more dominant conference for all 15 years. Um, but it does seem like it falls along party lines on this. Um, but at least this is something that you could potentially get to a vote if you uh, if you got down the line. I don't know how much of a priority it is. Um, there are some other priorities that the owners would have to deal with, with structural changes to the league. Um, but if you ask, you know, executives from the West, they feel like um, the schedule should be balanced across all and the, and the best 16 should get in. You talk to somebody in the East and they will say never in a million years will any of the owners vote to have uh, Utah make it or Denver make it ahead of a play uh, of a team like the Knicks or ahead of a team like Philadelphia, because ultimately it's about market size and you ultimately want Philadelphia, New York, um, Boston in, uh, you would want to have those teams in not bring in some of the smaller cities from the West. You know, you wouldn't, if you did one through 16 and Memphis got the 16th spot ahead of the Knicks, it would do materially worse damage to your business to, to not have the Knicks fans engaged. And those are all reasonable arguments. Um, but I think it just comes down to the fact that this is, this would always be a straight party line vote. Um, and it sort of makes it moot to talk about in the, in the straight conceptual one through 16 idea. So from a strictly kind of logistical view, you touched on this a little bit earlier. What would they do about the travel? Would, would they go to a two, three, two format for all the series? I saw a number that according to the NBA's own research, about 70% of all playoff games would be, be between teams that had to go back and forth between time zones, which seems like kind of a problem. Well, Adam mentioned, mentioned in that answer that, 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 possibly to mitigate that, that they would just extend the season even a little further. Um, I really think the, the way to do this is to shorten the regular season, and that's another um, uh, thing. But that is not something that's off the table for Adam. I think he definitely is looking for ways to do that. So one of the ways that you could potentially um, to um, deal with a shortened regular season is to make a more interesting playoffs. Um, I will just tell you that um, covering the 2016 finals, which was the heaviest travel series um, in the modern day NBA, which was seven game series between Cleveland and Golden State, where everybody had to go back and forth all of those times. I can tell you that it was absolutely exhausting. Um, now, granted, it was at the end of the playoffs, um, but the, you know they had all kinds of extra days built in. The 2016 finals lasted more days than the Rio Olympics. Seriously, it was longer than that. Um, I think the Rio Olympics were uh, 17 days, and I think the finals were 18 days, something like that. Um, and I can just tell you that the travel was just exhausting. So I I know that that, 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 that doesn't sound like it, that that doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal, but it is. It really is. And like, you know, for example, right now, Again, it depends on when this podcast runs and what happens, but like Golden State and Philadelphia would be a potential first round series if you seeded one through 16. And, you know, Golden State would probably win that series in five games, um, more than likely. But let's say it went six uh, and the Warriors had to make an extra trip to Philadelphia. Uh, It doesn't just penalize them during that series. It's a disadvantage going forward because now they've had to travel a lot extra than potentially their next round opponent who may have only had to take an hour flight or something like that. So um, there's a lot of, of things that would have to be worked out here. 
Um, but I would say that at least Adam Silver is continuing to express openness to change, and he has changed quite a few things. I think really the answer to this whole thing is to figure out a way to shorten the regular season. And some people would tell you that the regular season has already effectively been shortened, that Greg Popovich uh, is playing a 74-game season. He's just not telling everybody that he is um, because of the way he rests certain players at certain times. Um, and, you know, that argument could be made. Um, but also that's a much more complicated thing. But, uh, you know, ultimately the playoffs are such a cash cow for the league. It's such an opportunity for everybody's eyeballs to be drawn. It's, it's just, it's the time where the league makes or breaks its year in terms of finances that ensuring that the playoffs are the best they possibly can be. And even to another level that the finals are the best they can possibly be, that you truly have the two best teams is something that over the long term can benefit the league. It's just a matter of whether you could possibly convince people of the ch of the needed change and the sacrificing of short-term revenue, which is a big issue for most teams. Brian, is there any sense that you get uh, from like Silver bringing this up at this time that he's trying to move the goalposts on something else that like is kind of in this same bucket? So dissolving the, the divisions, for instance, which has been talked about for a long time and has kind of been, um, you know, poked at but never really got much traction so the reason i think no i think the reason that they don't want to dissolve the divisions and and before i even say this i recognize that people are going to roll their eyes and make fun of people for saying this one of the reasons why they don't dissolve the divisions is because it's at least something for teams to win and adam has talked about this for a couple of times you know he's a he's a big fan of european soccer and in European soccer, uh, and in European basketball for that matter, um, but certainly in soccer, there's multiple competitions going on at any one time. So, you know, if you um, are not doing so well in the Premier League, maybe you are doing well in the, in the Champions League. If you're not doing so well in the Premier League, maybe you're doing well in the FA Cup. Uh, you know, if you're, you know, if you're uh, in the Spanish League, maybe you're doing well in the Spanish League, but you're not doing well in the in the Euro League in basketball. And it gives the opportunity to, to um, you know, it gives you a fighting chance to win something, you know, more than just a championship. You know, there's 30 teams and, you know, only one team gets to hold the banner at the end. And I know that there are certain organizations like the Celtics, for example, the Celtics don't put division banners up. Okay. Um, but the, the, uh, the Wizards just won their first division title in like 40 years last year. You're damn right they celebrated that, and it's something for their fans to celebrate. And so I do think over the long haul, Adam would love to see something else that the teams could could play for. Um, he's floated a, a midseason tournament. I'm more interested in an end-of-season tournament uh, for playoff qualification. Um, but uh, that's, what, that's the reason they leave it up there, honestly. And, um, uh, and there are a lot of teams that do hang division banners. Uh, and you can mock them, but it's, it's in a lot of cases – they sell their tickets and they they market themselves as central division champions or whatever and and um that has some currency and the marketing people believe that has currency and and um yeah i know that you know and and they've taken most of the teeth out of the divisional seedings winning the division doesn't get you much anyway um but it does you know, there is some value to it, and that's something that his owners are telling him, and that's why they haven't gone away. Yeah, and it does seem like 
you know, once you balance the schedules that the division, you know, heavier scheduling for certain teams in division versus out or in conference versus out, those are the casualties of sort of spreading out the scheduling and making it be an even schedule theoretically. Is that something that sort of is necessarily baked into a plan like this down the line? Because like you mentioned earlier, they have to do something about evening up the schedule to make it even feasible to, to do this one through 16 thing. Maybe I mean it's not that hard to make sure you play everybody in your in your division four times. That's that wouldn't be the big encumbrance. Um, even if you did have uneven division schedules, um, uh, you could still crown a division. You could still figure a way to crown a division champion. It's not a priority, but um, uh, it's one of the things that he's. It's one of the balls he's got in the air. I think uh, you know one of the big problems with the NBA. Again, this just goes back to the reality. When you bring a proposal in front of the owners, okay, uh, I don't care if it's the greatest proposal for improvement of the quality of play in the history of the game. If you bring that proposal in front of them and it is not revenue neutral or revenue added, you got almost a, you got almost no chance. And I mean, I I, I read these position papers, I read these. Um, you know the, the, these uh, these ideas for for change to the league, and they're all academic. A lot of times, they're very academically sound. But if you get to that bottom line and it doesn't add money or not uh, reduce money from the coffers, they're just not going to vote that. And for as much as Adam Silver gets credit for his openness and his progressive thoughts, if you go back and look at his decisions. The majority of his major decisions have been revenue positive decisions, um, changing the format of the of the finals to two two one one one, uh, investing in FanDuel, uh, backing gambling, putting uh, ads on jerseys. Uh, the major decisions he've ma- he's made at the end of the day, no matter what he may say in interviews, have been to add revenue. So don't go to him with a real proposal that is not going to include that in- as a component. Almost just as interesting as the as the playoff reseeding is the the idea of the balanced schedule, and so on that notion of like you know fiscally you know we're gonna stay at least neutral. Uh, is there anything to getting one more game out of rivalry? So one more Celtics Lakers, one more Cavs Warriors, or whatever the finals rematch is. Uh, like typically these games are, end up on national TV anyway. But if you get one more of like whatever rivalries you have, is that gonna move the needle at all? It might. I mean, um, you know, if you look at the the ratings, definitely those are, and that's another that's another concept for some sort of mid season tournament. That is, um, you know, that's kind of the path to figuring out how to reduce the regular season is adding something within the season that can replace that revenue that would potentially mean fewer games. Um, and if you had some sort of mid season event that could potentially match up those teams. Um, you know, uh, you know. Again, I, I'll go over to European soccer. Um, if you can squeeze out one more Manchester United versus Manchester City game because it's in the FA Cup, boy, does it make a difference in the bottom line um, and in, in and and in the property that you can sell to television partners. Um, uh, that's one of the things that's on the board. Is you know, I so to me. I think a play-in tournament for the last seed in each conference is more feasible. Um, but it's not – you know, Adam has floated that, some sort of midseason event where you could get something like that. Now, is that something in the next three years? Probably not. But long-term, you know, as Adam gets more issues settled, 
it's not something that's impossible. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on whether or not this is just the first step in a series of maybe more radical changes. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Brian. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You can read Brian's work at ESPN.com, and you can also see him as a TV regular on ESPN's The Jump. Yeah, so so it is interesting, Kyle, to to think about these big changes to the league, and this seems like kind of a baby change uh, relative to all the other things that have been proposed about this. For instance, it doesn't address a situation where maybe the ninth seed in the West has a significantly better record than the eighth seed in the East or anything like that. It just maybe guarantees down the line that you could have the best two teams meeting in the NBA Finals, which seems like kind of a ratings play as much as anything. I mean, yes and no. Like The, the basic uh, structure of like East and West is like, uh, just fundamentally, it's in the DNA of like the NBA playoffs, like the traditional uh, rivalries that you get, like even ones that just spring up, like uh, that those couple years where the Grizzlies would play the Spurs every playoffs, mm-hmm. and um, like did they win one? I'm I actually forget. I think they like, may have upset them in in one of those. Uh, but yeah, like that's that's the kind of thing that is much more rare uh, when you kind of dilute it and just have everyone play everyone, and so things like you know the Clippers and the Clippers and the the Warriors before that became a thing, and. Uh, the Warriors and the Rockets. Or Clippers and Rockets. Yeah, Yeah, that like kind of three-team rivalry. And like those things are just going to be much more rare. So so yeah, like that's it's a big shift even if it's not like on kind of the margins of yeah, the eighth team in the East is probably going to be around 500. Right now it's it's like what, five up on 500. But which is kind of ironic that we're having this conversation now because we talked about this earlier this season that as much as people were worried about it going into the year, the East has actually been much better this season than people expected. They've fallen off a little bit and they have a below 500 record in cross-conference games, but it's still much better than it's been uh, in, in recent seasons. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, uh, the, the heat are sliding and like kind of the back end of the, the conference has not been as strong as it looked early on. Uh, and like that brings us back to what we talked with Brian a little bit about, which is just the lottery implications of all this. Where is it better for Milwaukee or Detroit or Miami to to go in, uh, you know, play play the Raptors probably or the the Celtics in that first round and lose in f- between four and five games? Like probably, like maybe they'll get to a sixth, um, or just you know just roll the dice, uh, see if you can get that upset, like be the Nuggets uh, from whatever that Don Nelson team was. Uh, great. But again, we're moving into this era where we have lottery reform where instead of a one or two or two and a half percent chance to get a premium pick in the top three, top four, uh, teams now have like eight percent chance, like six percent chance, like nine percent chance if you're just outside of the playoffs. And that is a big deal. Like once you get like it's compounded into the point where it's just like, oh, yeah, that's like if you have a six or eight or nine percent chance to get one of these picks, that is significant. And. Like, those are the kind of picks that, like, change a franchise if, you know, if you nail your picks and execute well, which is, you know, a problem for all these teams, yada, yada, yada. But still, that has to be more beneficial from a certain point of view than getting into the playoffs, although those same clubs tend to be the ones that value the revenue that comes in from getting in there that just, you know, want to win something, like Brian said. Uh, so they're, like, obviously competing uh, ideologies, but uh, the lottery drain or the talent drain that happens in the east is a big reason why like it just perpetuates itself that there's a talent imbalance because worse picks are getting worse worse teams are getting worse picks in the east and the nba uh definitely doesn't have the best history of sort of sniffing out these potential conflicts of interest and and sort of ways that teams might hack the system ahead of time which is why we 
constantly have to talk about tanking, constantly have to talk about, you know, situations even a few years ago before they closed up that division loophole where teams were tanking seeding to, to make sure they got to play certain teams in the first round. Teams are really smart. And, and like you said, Kyle, they might. I mean, are we going to get to the point under this system where a team might tank being the 16 seed and intentionally miss the playoffs so they can have a higher uh, chance at a lottery pick? It sounds ridiculous, but uh, I wouldn't put anything past teams at this point. Um, and not just not just the teams, the players. I mean, for years, for like a decade now, we've been hearing that you know guys go to the West to you know try not to play against LeBron. Guys tend to just like move east to west, even though it doesn't make sense competitively or whatever else. And so that would no longer be a thing. Like you would just have to play the field as it were. And like LeBron would have to, you know, play the field um, that, you know, the Western Conference has. And so in a way it's, it's both like eliminates that, whatever, if you want to call it a LeBron loophole where he just gets to beat up the East because, you know, no one wants to play against him, allegedly. Or it could also just kind of validate the entire enterprise of people saying, no, no, no. LeBron is just that good. Like he just hasn't had t- good teams to play against. There no longer would be the the opportunity for a superstar to have like that levied against him. No, he's playing the field. Okay, let's leave playoff reform there and close out the episode with a segment we like to call significant digits. All right, it's that time of the show where we present our significant digit of the week. This is where we discuss an attention-grabbing number from the NBA. Maybe it's an emerging trend. Maybe it's noise. Maybe it's just interesting to us. And this week's Sig Dig is plus 34.6. That is the Toronto Raptors' point margin per 100 possessions when C.J. Miles, Jakob Pertl, Pascal Siakam... Fred Van Vliet and DeLon Wright are on the court together. That's a mouthful. Uh, according to basketballreference.com, that is the top mark for any five-man lineup that has played at least 100 minutes so far this season. And it's a big reason why the Raptors as a team have the best bench in the NBA, outscoring opponents by 8.8 points per 100 possessions when none of their starters are in the game. Kyle, what makes these guys work so well together? I mean, so if you're looking at the the advanced stats, whatever else, um, it's because they all are playing like DeMar DeRozan, which is, uh, it's astonishing that it's just working for the whole team. So, so we have the, the fancy stuff from Second Spectrum that shows you, um, you know, relative to league average, uh, how likely a player is to make a shot based on, you know, everyone else, um, shot quality, and then shot making, which is like, how often do they make that shot? CJ Miles is in the top 50, making like, uh, plus 5.5 percentage points better. Um, he's like, that's basically right there with Victor Oladipo. Uh, Jakob Podol uh, is right behind him. Then Demar, he's the uh, Podol and Demar are tied at number sixty. Uh, then we have uh, Valanciunas. Fred VanVleet is like actually way down here, but like VanVleet does other stuff for them. And Serge Ibaka way up top. Um, so he's not in the thing, but like there are a lot of Toronto guys just uh, kind of throwing the ball in from wherever the hell, and that's like uncommon for the league as a whole. Uh, but there are a couple of those guys on this on this lineup also. And I think we talked about this earlier in the season. Toronto has really changed the way that they play compared with previous seasons and sort of they're taking more threes. They're they're moving the ball more. They're they're playing less of sort of a ISO heavy old style of basketball and more in the kind of pace and space style of, you know, that's in that's in vogue with teams like the Warriors. So it makes sense and and I also appreciate just how well these guys mesh in terms of what they're being asked to do. They seem to each have their concrete role that they play really well, not any of them are asked to do too much, uh, and and they're all playing those roles very effectively and efficiently. Uh, But my question, 
related to all this, uh, and, and we'll probably talk about the Raptors later in the season, but whether or not something like this, where you have an incredibly dominant second unit, pretty dominant starting lineup too, we should say, I think they're fourth in the league in point differential, maybe third, uh, when, when at least one starter is on the court. But this second unit, does that make us more or less confident in the Raptors? I think one of the big themes with the Raptors is just how serious do we take them as a legitimate threat, even though they're the number one seed in the East right now. Uh, we've seen this team lose in the playoffs. So does having that deep rotation make you almost in a way less confident in them? Because we know in the playoffs, rotations shorten and you rely less on a dominating bench. I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to if it's a team that is just kind of relying on, you know, going 10, 11 deep, uh, just kind of running you ragged and, you know, playing pace. Uh, yeah, Yeah, of course, that's always going to for the obvious reasons. But it also gives you options in a short series where uh, you can try different, you know, kind of wrinkles or whatever else of like, what if we're going to play a lot of Alan Shunis and like we're just going to go big and like whatever, they're not going to do that. But um, it, give, it gives you options. And also they have Norm Powell, uh, who has had a pretty disappointing season so far, but has played well in the past. And, you know, he you know, might, you know, the lights might flicker on whatever. So being deep is a funny thing where like we start to, you know, disbelieve like your performance or whatever. Um, but it's it's not inherently a bad thing. Um, it's just a reason to you know question the record at you know the number one seed. Yeah, and that's a great point. That you know one of the disadvantages for a team in the playoffs is that your opponent gets to scout you a bunch of times and really gets to kind of know the nuts and bolts of how you play. The more effective combinations that you can throw out there with good players like the Raptors have, it seems like that can throw a, a curveball at the advanced scouting of the opponent and give you a leg up and. A series even okay well we'll leave the raptors there and that will do it for this week's show thanks again to brian windhorst for joining us as always our podcast producers are tony chow and katie ferguson our podcast commissioner is chad matlin thanks to all who sent us suggestions about the all-star game please continue to send us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or even on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.